Book Three, Chapter Three, of the History of the Conquest of Mexico. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of the Conquest of Mexico by William H. Prescott, Book Three, Chapter Three. The Spaniards were allowed to repose undisturbed the following day, and to recruit their strength after the fatigue and hard fighting on the preceding. They found sufficient employment, however, in repairing and cleaning their weapons, replenishing their diminished stock of arrows, and getting everything in order for further hostilities, should the severe lesson they had inflicted on the enemy prove insufficient to discourage him. On the second day, as Cortes received no overtures from the Tlascalans, he determined to send an embassy to their camp, proposing a cessation of hostilities, and expressing his intention to visit their capital as a friend. He selected two of the principal chiefs taken in the late engagement as the bearers of the message. Meanwhile, averse to leaving his men longer in a dangerous state of inaction, which the enemy might interpret as the result of timidity or exhaustion, he put himself at the head of the cavalry, and such light troops as were most fit for service, and made a foray into the neighboring country. It was a mountainous region formed by a ramification of the great Sierra Tlaxcala, with verdant slopes and valleys teeming with maize and plantations of maguey, while the eminences were crowned with populous towns and villages. In one of these, he tells us, he found three thousand dwellings. In some places he met with a resolute resistance, and on these occasions took ample vengeance by laying the country waste with fire and sword. After a successful inroad, he returned laden with forage and provisions, and driving before him several hundred Indian captives. He treated them kindly, however, when arrived in camp, endeavouring to make them understand that these acts of violence were not dictated by his own wishes, but by the unfriendly policy of their countrymen. In this way he hoped to impress the nation with the conviction of his power, on the one hand, and of his amicable intentions if met by them in the like spirit on the other. On reaching his quarters he found the two envoys returned from the Tlascalan camp, they had fallen in with Sikotenkatl at about two leagues' distance, where he lay encamped with a powerful force. The cacique gave them audience at the head of his troops. He told them to return with the answer, that the Spaniards might pass on as soon as they chose to Tlaxcala, and, when they reached it, their flesh would be hewn from their bodies for sacrifice to the gods. If they preferred to remain in their own quarters, he would pay them a visit there the next day. The ambassadors added that the chief had an immense force with him, consisting of five battalions of ten thousand men each. They were the flower of the Tlaxcalan and Otomi warriors assembled under the banners of their respective leaders, by command of the Senate, who were resolved to try the fortunes of the state in a pitched battle, and strike one decisive blow for the extermination of the invaders. This bold defiance fell heavily on the ears of the Spaniards, not prepared for so pertinacious a spirit in their enemy. They had had ample proof of his courage and formidable prowess. They were now in their crippled condition to encounter him with a still more terrible array of numbers. The war, too, from the horrible fate 
with which it menaced the vanquished, wore a peculiarly gloomy aspect that pressed heavily on their spirits. We fear death, says the lion-hearted Diaz, with his usual simplicity, for we were men. There was scarcely one in the army that did not confess himself that night to the Reverend Father Olmedo, who was occupied nearly the whole of it with administering absolution and with the other solemn offices of the church. Armed with the blessed sacraments, the Catholic soldier lay tranquilly down to rest, prepared for any fate that might betide him under the banner of the cross. As a battle was now inevitable, Cortes resolved to march out and meet the enemy in the field. This would have a show of confidence that might serve the double purpose of intimidating the Tlaxcalans and inspiring his own men, whose enthusiasm might lose somewhat of its heat if compelled to await the assault of their antagonists inactive in their own entrenchments. The sun rose bright on the following morning, the 5th of September, 1519, an eventful day in the history of Spanish conquest. The general reviewed his army and gave them, preparatory to marching, a few words of encouragement and advice. The infantry he instructed to rely on the point rather than the edge of their swords, and to endeavor to thrust their opponents through the body. The horsemen were to charge at half-speed, with their lances aimed at the eyes of the Indians. The artillery, the arquebusiers, and crossbowmen were to support one another, some loading while others discharged their pieces, that there should be an unintermitted firing kept up through the action. Above all, they were to maintain their ranks close and unbroken, as on this depended their preservation. They had not advanced a quarter of a league when they came in sight of the Tlaxcalan army. Its dense array stretched far and wide over a vast plain or meadow-ground, about six miles square. Its appearance justified the report which had been given of its numbers. Nothing could be more picturesque than the aspect of these Indian battalions, with the naked bodies of the common soldiers gaudily painted, the fantastic helmets of the chiefs glittering with gold and precious stones, and the glowing panoplies of feather-work which decorated their persons. Innumerable spears and darts tipped with points of transparent itzli or fiery copper sparkled bright in the morning sun, like the phosphoric gleams playing on the surface of a troubled sea. While the rear of the mighty host was dark with the shadows of banners on which were emblazoned the armorial bearings of the great Tlaxcalan and Otome chieftains, among these the white heron on the rock, the cognizance of the house of Sikotencatl, was conspicuous, and still more, the golden eagle with outspread wings, in the fashion of a Roman signum, richly ornamented with emeralds and silver-work, the great standard of the Republic of Tlaxcala. The common file wore no covering except a girdle around the loins. Their bodies were painted with the appropriate colors of the chieftain whose banner they followed. The feather male of the higher class of warriors exhibited also a similar selection of colors for the like object, in the same manner as the color of the tartan indicates the peculiar clan of the highlander. The caciques and principal warriors were clothed in a quilted cotton tunic, two inches thick, which, fitting close to the body, protected also the thighs and the shoulders. Over this the wealthier Indians wore cuirasses of thin gold plate or silver. Their legs were defended by leathern boots or sandals trimmed with gold. 
but the most brilliant part of their costume was a rich mantle of the plumage, or featherwork embroidered with curious art, and furnishing some resemblance to the gorgeous surcoat worn by the European knight over his armor in the Middle Ages. This graceful and picturesque dress was surmounted by a fantastic headpiece made of wood or leather, representing the head of some wild animal, and frequently displaying a formidable array of teeth. With this covering the warrior's head was enveloped, producing a most grotesque and hideous effect. From the crown floated a splendid panache of the richly variegated plumage of the tropics, indicating, by its form and colors, the rank and family of the wearer. To complete their defensive armor, they carried shields or targets made sometimes of wood covered with leather, but more usually of a light frame of reeds quilted with cotton, which were preferred as tougher and less liable to fracture than the former. They had other bucklers in which the cotton was covered with an elastic substance, enabling them to be shut up in a more compact form, like a fan or umbrella. These shields were decorated with showy ornaments, according to the taste or wealth of the wearer, and fringed with a beautiful pendant of feather-work. Their weapons were slings, bows and arrows, javelins and darts. They were accomplished archers, and would discharge two or even three arrows at a time. But they were most excelled in throwing the javelin. One species of this, with a thong attached to it, which remained in the slinger's hand that he might recall the weapon, was especially dreaded by the Spaniards. These various weapons were pointed with bone, or with mineral itzitli, obsidian, the hard vitreous substance already noticed as capable of taking an edge like a razor, though easily blunted. Their spears and arrows were also frequently headed with copper. Instead of a sword, they bore a two-handed staff, about three feet and a half long, in which, at regular distances, were inserted, transversely, sharp blades of its sitli, a formidable weapon which, an eyewitness assures us, he had seen fell a horse at a blow. Such was the costume of the Tlascalan warrior, and indeed of that great family of nations generally, who occupy the plateau of Anahuac. Some parts of it, as the targets and the cotton mail, or esquapil as it was called in Castilian, were so excellent that they were subsequently adopted by the Spaniards, as equally effectual in the way of protection and superior, on the score of lightness and convenience to their own. They were of sufficient strength to turn an arrow or the stroke of a javelin, although impotent as a defense against firearms. But what armor is not? Yet it is probably no exaggeration to say that, in convenience, gracefulness, and strength, the arms of the Indian warrior were not very inferior to those of the polished nations of antiquity. As soon as the Castilians came in sight, the Tlascalans set up their yell of defiance, rising high above the wild barbaric minstrelsy of shell, atabal, and trumpet, with which they proclaimed their triumphant anticipations of victory over the paltry forces of the invaders. When the latter had come within bowshot, the Indians hurled a tempest of missiles that darkened the sun for a moment, as with a passing cloud strewing the earth around with heaps of stones and arrows. 
Slowly and steadily the little band of Spaniards held on its way amidst this arrowy shower, until it had reached what appeared the proper distance for delivering its fire with full effect. Cortes then halted, and hastily forming his troops, opened a general well-directed fire along the whole line. Every shot bore its errand of death, and the ranks of the Indians were mowed down faster than their comrades in the rear could carry off their bodies, according to custom from the field. The balls in their passage through the crowded files bearing splinters of the broken harness and mangled limbs of the warriors scattered havoc and desolation in their path. The mob of barbarians stood petrified with dismay, till at length, galled to desperation by their intolerable suffering, they poured forth simultaneously their hideous war-shriek and rushed impetuously on the Christians. On they came like an avalanche, or mountain torrent, shaking the solid earth and sweeping away every obstacle in its path. The little army of Spaniards opposed a bold front to the overwhelming mass but no strength could withstand it. They faltered, gave way, were borne along before it, and their ranks were broken and thrown into disorder. It was in vain the general called on them to close again and rally. His voice was drowned by the din of fight and the fierce cries of the assailants. For a moment it seemed that all was lost. The tide of battle had turned against them, and the fate of the Christians was sealed. But every man had that within his bosom which spoke louder than the voice of the general. Despair gave unnatural energy to his arms. The naked body of the Indian afforded no resistance to the sharp Toledo steel, and with their good swords the Spanish infantry at length succeeded in slaying the human torrent. The heavy guns from a distance thundered on the flank of the assailants, which, shaken by the iron tempest, was thrown into disorder. Their very numbers increased the confusion, as they were precipitated on the masses in front. The horse, at the same time, charging gallantly under Cortes, followed up the advantage, and at length compelled the tumultuous throng to fall back with greater precipitation and disorder than that with which they had advanced. More than once in the course of the action a similar assault was attempted by the Tlascalans, but each time with less spirit and greater loss. They were too deficient in military science to profit by their vast superiority in numbers. They were distributed into companies, it is true, each serving under its own chieftain and banner, but they were not arranged by rank and file, and moved in a confused mass, promiscuously heaped together. They knew not how to concentrate numbers on a given point, or even how to sustain an assault, by employing successive detachments to support and relieve one another. A very small part only of their array could be brought into contact with an enemy inferior to them in amount of forces. The remainder of the army, inactive and worse than useless in the rear, served only to press tumultuously on the advance, and embarrass its movements by mere weight of numbers, while in the least alarm they were seized with a panic and threw the whole body into inextricable confusion. It was, in short, the combat of the ancient Greeks and Persians over again. Still, the great numerical superiority of the Indians might have enabled them, at a severe cost of their own lives indeed, to wear out in time the constancy of the Spaniards, disabled by wounds and incessant fatigue. But fortunately for the latter, 
dissensions arose among their enemies. A Talascan chieftain, commanding one of the great divisions, had taken umbrage at the haughty demeanour of Sikotenkatl, who had charged him with misconduct or cowardice in the late action. The injured cacique challenged his rival to single combat. This did not take place, but, burning with resentment, he chose the present occasion to indulge it by drawing off his forces, amounting to ten thousand men, from the field. He also persuaded another of the commanders to follow his example. Thus, reduced to about half his original strength, and that greatly crippled by the losses of the day, Sikotenkatl could no longer maintain his ground against the Spaniards. After disputing the field with admirable courage for four hours, he retreated and resigned it to the enemy. The Spaniards were too much jaded, and too many were disabled by wounds to allow them to pursue, and Cortes, satisfied with the decisive victory he had gained, returned in triumph to his position on the hill of Tzompak. The number of killed in his own ranks had been very small, notwithstanding the severe loss inflicted on the enemy. These few he was careful to bury where they could not be discovered, anxious to conceal not only the amount of the slain, but the fact that the whites were mortal. But very many of the men were wounded, and all the horses. The trouble of the Spaniards was much enhanced by the want of many articles important to them in their present exigency. They had neither oil nor salt, which, as before noticed, was not to be obtained in Tlaxcala. Their clothing, accommodated to a softer climate, was ill adapted to the rude air of the mountains, and bows and arrows, as Bernal Diaz sarcastically remarks, formed an indifferent protection against the inclemency of the weather. Still, they had much to cheer them in the events of the day, and they might draw from them a reasonable ground for confidence in their own resources, such as no other experience could have supplied. Not that the results could authorize anything like contempt for their Indian foe. Singly and with the same weapons he might have stood his grounds against the Spaniards, but the success of the day established the superiority of science and discipline over mere physical courage and numbers. It was fighting over again, as we have said, the old battle of the European and the Asiatic. But the handful of Greeks who routed the hosts of Xerxes and Darius, it must be remembered, had not so obvious an advantage on the score of weapons as was enjoyed by the Spaniards in these wars. The use of firearms gave an ascendancy which cannot easily be estimated, one so great that a contest between nations equally civilized, which should be similar in all other respects to that between the Spaniards and the Tlascalans, would probably be attended with a similar issue. To all this must be added the effect produced by the cavalry. The nations of Anahuac had no large domesticated animals, and were unacquainted with any beast of burden. Their imaginations were bewildered when they beheld the strange apparition of the horse and his rider, moving in unison and obedient to one impulse, as if possessed of a common nature, and as they saw the terrible animal with his neck clothed in thunder, bearing down their squadrons and trampling them in the dust, no wonder they should have regarded him with the mysterious terror felt for a supernatural being. A very little reflection on the manifold grounds of superiority, 
both moral and physical, possessed by the Spaniards in this contest, will surely explain the issue, without any disparagement to the courage or capacity of their opponents. Cortes, thinking the occasion favorable, followed up the important blow he had struck by a new mission to the capital bearing a message of similar import with that recently sent to the camp. But the Senate was not yet sufficiently humbled. The late defeat caused, indeed, general consternation. Maxix Katzin, one of the four great lords who presided over the Republic, reiterated with greater force the arguments before urged by him for embracing the proffered alliance of the strangers. The armies of the state had been beaten too often to allow any reasonable hope of successful resistance, and he enlarged on the generosity shown by the politic conqueror to his prisoners, so unusual in Anahuac, as an additional motive for an alliance with men who knew how to be friends as well as foes. But in these views he was overruled by the war party, whose animosity was sharpened rather than subdued by the late discomfiture. Their hostile feelings were further exasperated by the younger Xicotencatl, who burned for an opportunity to retrieve his disgrace, and to wipe away the stain which had fallen for the first time on the arms of the Republic. In their perplexity they called in the assistance of the priests, whose authority was frequently invoked in the deliberations of the American chiefs. The latter inquired, with some simplicity, of these interpreters of fate, whether the strangers were supernatural beings or men of flesh and blood like themselves. The priests, after some consultation, are said to have made the strange answer, that the Spaniards, though not gods, were children of the sun, that they derived their strength from that luminary, and, when his beams were withdrawn, their powers would also fail. They recommended a night attack, therefore, as one which afforded the best chance of success. This apparently childish response may have had in it more of cunning than credulity. It was not improbably suggested by Xicotencatl himself, or by the caciques in his interest, to reconcile the people to a measure which was contrary to the military usages, indeed it may be said, to the public law of Anahuac. Whether the fruit of artifice or superstition, it prevailed, and the Tlascalan general was empowered at the head of a detachment of ten thousand warriors to try the effect of an assault by night. The affair was conducted with such secrecy that it did not reach the ears of the Spaniards, but their general was not one who allowed himself sleeping or waking to be surprised on his post. Fortunately, the night appointed was illumined by the full beams of an autumnal moon, and one of the videttes perceived by its light, at a considerable distance, a large body of Indians moving toward the Christian lines. He was not slow in giving the alarm to the garrison. The Spaniards slept, as has been said, with their arms by their side, while their horses, picketed near them, stood ready saddled, with the bridle hanging at the bow. In five minutes the whole camp was under arms, when they beheld the dusky columns of the Indians cautiously advancing over the plain, their heads just appearing above the tall maze with which the land was partially covered. Cortes determined not to abide the assault in his entrenchments, but to sally out and pounce on the enemy when he had reached the bottom of the hill. Slowly and stealthily the Indians advanced, while the Christian camp, 
hushed in profound silence, seemed to them buried in slumber. But no sooner had they reached the slope of the rising ground than they were astounded by the deep battle-cry of the Spaniards, followed by the instantaneous apparition of the whole army, as they sallied forth from the works and poured down the sides of the hill. Brandishing aloft their weapons, they seemed to the troubled fancies of the Telascalans like so many spectres or demons hurrying to and fro in mid-air, while the uncertain light magnified their numbers and expanded the horse and his rider into gigantic and unearthly dimensions. Scarcely waiting the shock of their enemy, the panic-struck barbarians left off a feeble volley of arrows, and offering no other resistance, fled rapidly and tumultuously across the plain. The horse easily overtook the fugitives, riding them down and cutting them to pieces without mercy, until Cortes, weary with the slaughter, called off his men, leaving the field loaded with the bloody trophies of victory. The next day, the Spanish commander, with his usual policy after a decisive blow had been struck, sent a new embassy to the Tlascalan capital. The envoys received their instructions through the interpreter, Marina. That remarkable woman had attracted general admiration by the constancy and cheerfulness with which she endured all the privations of the camp. Far from betraying the natural weakness and timidity of her sex, she had shrunk from no hardship herself, and had done much to fortify the drooping spirits of the soldiers, while her sympathies, whenever occasion offered, had been actively exerted in mitigating the calamities of her Indian countrymen. Through his faithful interpreter, Cortes communicated the terms of his message to the Tlascalan envoys. He made the same professions of amity as before, promising oblivion of all past injuries, but, if this proffer was rejected, he would visit their capital as a conqueror, raise every house in it to the ground, and put every inhabitant to the sword. He then dismissed the ambassadors with the symbolical presence of a letter in one hand and an arrow in the other. The envoys obtained respectful audience from the Council of Tlaxcala, whom they found plunged in deep dejection by their recent reverses. The failure of the night attack had extinguished every spark of hope in their bosoms. Their armies had been beaten again and again in the open field and in secret ambush. Stratagem and courage, all their resources, had alike proved ineffectual against a foe whose hand was never weary and whose eye was never closed. Nothing remained but to submit. They selected four principal caciques, whom they entrusted with a mission to the Christian camp. They were to assure the strangers of a free passage through the country, and a friendly reception in the capital. The proffered friendship of the Spaniards was cordially embraced, with many awkward excuses for the past. The envoys were to touch at the Tlaxcalan camp on their way, and inform Sicotencatl of their proceedings. They were to require him, at the same time, to abstain from all further hostilities, and to furnish the white men with an ample supply of provisions. But the Tlaxcalan deputies, on arriving at the quarters of that chief, did not find him in the humor to comply with these instructions. His repeated collisions with the Spaniards, or it may be, his constitutional courage, left him inaccessible to the vulgar terrors of his countrymen. He regarded the strangers not as supernatural beings, but as men like himself. 
the animosity of a warrior had rankled into a deadly hatred from the mortifications he had endured at their hands, and his head teemed with plans for recovering his fallen honors, and for taking vengeance on the invaders of his country. He refused to disband any of the force still formidable under his command, or to send supplies to the enemy's camp. He further induced the ambassadors to remain in his quarters, and relinquish their visits to the Spaniards. The latter, in consequence, were kept in ignorance of the movements in their favor which had taken place in the Tlaxcalan capital. The conduct of Sicotencatl is condemned by Castilian writers as that of a ferocious and sanguinary barbarian. It is natural they should so regard it, but those who have no national prejudice to warp their judgments may come to a different conclusion. They may find much to admire in that high, unconquerable spirit, like some proud column, standing alone in its majesty amidst the fragments and ruins around it. They may see evidences of a clear-sighted sagacity, which, piercing the thin veil of insidious friendship proffered by the Spaniards, and penetrating the future, discerned the coming miseries of his country, the noble patriotism of one who would rescue that country at any cost, and, amidst the gathering darkness, would infuse his own intrepid spirit into the hearts of his nation, to animate them to a last struggle for independence. End of Book 3, Chapter 3